Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. So check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hey listeners, I want to tell you about a sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week they host different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like O'Teal Burbridge, Trouble No More, former members of the band, Milk Carton Kids, Nikki Glaspie, Bill Frizzell, Sean Colvin, and many more. This June, Join the Fab Foe, Joan Osborne, John Sebastian, Marshall Crenshaw, and a great group of faculty for the debut of Magical Mystery Camp. This all-inclusive, once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, speakers, song circles, open mics, and a lot more. If you're a performing musician at any level, bring your instrument. If you're a music lover, bring your good spirit. It's an amazing experience for individuals, friends, and couples alike. Registration is open, spots are filling up, so check it out soon. And scholarships are available. Check out magicalmysterycamp.com slash helpingfriendly to learn more. The workers that come back from their day in the field Jennifer dances and she cooks me a meal A little less salt in the gravy
Hey everyone, welcome to the Helping Friendly Podcast. This is episode 127. We're here with a guest who's been here before, and he's back. Wade, what's up, man? Hey, how are you? It's uh, very nice to be back. We're excited to have you back, and I'm here with Jonathan and Matt. Hey, guys. Ahoy, ahoy. Um, we're missing Brad tonight, unfortunately, but we have a we have a chair for him, and he will um, be with us in spirit as always, and and back with us soon. Um, I think he's skiing or like climbing mountains or doing something else really interesting while we're all sitting around our microphones talking about fish. I thought he said he was fighting children and ninjas. I, I'm... <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, so, guys, we are we are going to go back to. Um, we're going to go back in time on this one. Go back in the time in the time machine to 1999. And, and Wade, we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, and you've, we've been talking about this for a while. You actually sent a very detailed outline, a, a tome even. Um, it was more of a kind of, it was sort of a um, tribute to 99 slash Unabomber. I think there was a bit of a manifesto in there, yeah. <laughs> It was half, it was half Unabomber, half um, you know Park Pewdiepie, but um, but we're we're excited to be to be talking about 1999. But before we dive in, I guess first, thanks everyone for listening and thanks for your support and feedback. And um, if you if you haven't yet, you should give us a review on iTunes because um, we like we like when we when we click on it, which Jonathan does um, every day or every other day. We like seeing the numbers go up. Um, so. No, I'm just kidding. Jonathan doesn't really look at it, but it's good for helping other people discover the podcast. So please do that if you haven't. And just say, like, these guys these guys rock. That's all you have to do. Um, especially Matt, who has been doing an awesome job with production and editing. And Matt loves it when we thank him. So thanks, Matt. That guy sucks. Um, <laughs> and I, and I, do, so, I do refresh the numbers, like, multiple times a day. Um, <laughs> by, the way, if we're, by the way, because of the numbers, we should make a shout-out to uh, Simplecast. Uh, mm-hmm. amazing podcast hosting partner uh, that uh, we have started to use and they make the numbers look really pretty for us and we love them. Yeah, they're really good. Um, you guys should check them out for, for your podcast hosting needs, but also our numbers look so cool now. Um, it's as the, Matt it's said. the color scheme, right? It's something easy fonts that are easy on the eyes. There's something. Um, so guys, as round zeros. There were several um, rumored fish summer tour dates this week that then got crossed off with and put, you know, replaced with other summer tour dates. Jonathan's giving a thumbs down because he hates summer tour. Um, <laughs> there's all kinds of rumors. I bet by the next time we record, there might be actual dates, but um, it's pretty funny to watch it go back and forth, right? right? Well, the way fish works, they'll probably come out um, right as we drop this episode, just so we'll look foolish. But, um, yeah, the, it's fun to watch people like get all excited about uh, gorge dates and book all of the hotels and all of the things when, you know, they're just completely speculative. Not even, or or some some guy who has an Instagram account dedicated to how much they love the gorge uses hashtag fish in every single post, but somebody noticed it this week and they decided that meant <laughs> gorge. So yeah, that yeah. just it cracks me up. I think rumors are a great segue into uh, into this year as well. Uh, uh, these uh, there have been some. Yeah, the, this is where really where uh, the <clears throat> quote unquote lot rumor epidemic really took off. <laughs> let's let's do that. 
But I'll just want to tell you guys that I'll see you guys at uh, Bonner Springs, Kansas, for the opener in 2018. I think I'm going. I'm driving, so I'll see you guys there. Um, you're, you're like leaving tomorrow, right? Yeah, I'm walking. Um, <laughs> it takes a minute so to get that far. I do want to. Maybe we can. Um, maybe we can sprinkle this in. The only other thing I want to bring up. I think you're right, Wade. Let's. We should get into this because that's a good segue. I wanted to touch on a very quick um, Twitter conversation that I saw yesterday. That some people are um, lamenting slash musing about fish being lazy because the dead and Jerry were playing so many shows per year up until. You know, they stopped playing, which maybe is part of the answer to the question. But this idea of fish being lazy is uh, is is funny and crazy to me. But maybe we can talk about that as we get further into like this evolution. But I just thought that was a funny um, conversation to stumble upon. And I think it's silly. I don't I don't think I can leave this right here and like come back to it, RJ. I mean, the dead were playing a lot of shows, but um, they shouldn't have been. So, um, <laughs> otherwise we might would have a Jerry Garcia, maybe not, but like it didn't help. So yeah, it's a silly rumor and that's, it is, well, I mean, it's, a, it's a silly thought. I, I agree. Uh, I think that also does not take into account the fact that three of the four members have children under the age of 10. Um, and so, you know, going away for long periods of time is not exactly, uh, conducive to being a good father. So, I mean, even other bands, um, you know, you don't see them going out for these long stretches of time that people seem to want. But to get back to, the, to 1999 and a nice segue, one of the things that I did notice is we were kind of looking over all of this stuff. They played a lot of shows that year and they played like, ev- they played everywhere. Like ev- they played everywhere, like every single possible place that they could play that year. Yeah, they did. And well, let's let's <laughs> that's Otis. Let's set the stage. Let's set the stage because it is a stage. Um, it is the probably the one of the peaks of their their drama arc. Uh, as you know, you know the whole grassroots band does okay. Starts selling out the garden. Starts selling out arenas. Um, and, you know, before you know it, you have, you know, hundreds of people to support the number of people of a number of hangers on at the, of course, now infamous Betty Ford Clinic. Uh, those numbers are beginning to grow exponentially, uh, over the course of 1996 to, um, all the way through 2.0. And, uh, as such... Uh, the travel of information from within inside the camp was uh, seemingly flowing to the outside circles, but still a convoluted and dangerous game of telephone, uh, as we'll get into later on. But uh, to set the stage from a tonal uh, level, um, because we are here for the music, uh, it's all about the music, and uh, the drama here is secondary, but the drama feeds the music in this year in a big way. But uh, we take the 1998, we take the story of the Ghost Sessions, uh, and the subsequent Sick of Disc, coming from the jamming sessions, Steve Lillywhite. Um, uh, and 
you, what you have here is their first piece, uh, an al you know, an album's worth of material that is recorded to pretty much strictly like the ambient process, the group, the hive mind process. Um, and uh, like uh, someone had mentioned in the Google document, this no one had heard these sick of disc songs going into this going into this summer tour here um and uh which 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 really helped you know it sort of pieced together why everything was so spacey but people would come to find out later on in the year that the sick of disc uh actually existed then all of a sudden pieces like my left toe and what's the use and this whole new ambient spacey direction uh came from but it, but come uh you know come lakewood no one has any idea that any of this material even exists um but anyway uh you know in 98 we start to see you know we have the horn from portland meadows is a great example of um you know beginning to be getting the ambient leanings the reba from 1029 uh great example of uh this starting to get the you know that intersection of funk and space and then of course the wolfman's the third set of the halloween that year um lots of stuff to indicate that they were things were going to get much more spacey uh which of course they did um uh and now going going back to the lot rumors now we have <clears throat> they're starting compositions are starting to get less tight this started in 1996 and started slowly progressing over the years the compositions were slipping the flubs the, the flubs were multiplying the jams were getting more electrified and longer and uh more um Maybe not longer, but uh, more likely to hang on a thing, less um, erratic, less jumping around. Yeah, absolutely. And what? Um, so now, and of course, you have Trace is through '97 and '98 taking a very, very upfront frontman approach, and there are visible signs of the struggle you're seeing more discourse uh just in there looking at each other on stage that you know trey has clearly stepped out in front and you know with the announcement of this solo tour i remember especially the older folks that i had been touring with people who had been going since you know 1990 91 uh in my circle at that point were like oh shit is this is this the beginning of the you know the end is this you know you know it's everything sort of felt like it was leaning towards you know trey being just up front and too up front and the democratic process might be disappearing here and this was the i remember the first time there was any sort of uncertainty as to you know what was going to happen uh in the community uh, even though this tour uh, yielded some I incredible results, ultimately this was a Trey 
ego-driven, raw rock and roll, just blistering Trayon display every night. And, of course, he got his acoustic sets and he got to just completely be in control of the room, which he it's, it's Trey. He rises to the occasion. This is what he does. Well, I, can I jump in here for a second, Wade? I want to I want to weigh in on this bit because um, I remember this quite well as well. And uh, and I also remember people wondering the same thing about is this, you know, is this where Fish kind of stumbles? Is this the beginning of the demise while Trey continues to move further out front? I knew people who stopped seeing him in the period kind of leading up to this. And one of them in particular was like, yeah, man, it's just Trey wanking in front of everybody. And it's not as, it's not as fun. It's not as, it's not as much of what I, and I mean, he, uh, was going for. And, um, and I can respect that. Uh, I disagree perhaps, but, uh, you know, (laughs) I kept going. And I remember also there was another point made about this tour amongst my circle when it came up was that, well, that's fine. Trey wants to do some solo thing. It's no big deal. Jerry had the Jerry band. Trey just wants to do, you know, wants to do a thing that's, you know, just his and and then he'll come back and we'll have fish, right? Right? We tried to reassure ourselves. Um, but uh, I have friends who caught several of these and I only caught the one drunken mayhem night at a 930 club but um this is great stuff it is and i'm glad you said that and i'm and i don't know you know i'm not sure if if either uh you know of you two um had you know the anybody in your touring circle i mean this was a thing i mean people were you know, there were like divided in the fence. Jerry had Jerry band, and then you know, then there were the. Oh, this is the beginning of the end, and and this uh, this tour really sets the stage for the uncertainty of uh, of this year. So, and I don't. It's certainly not nice to hear uh, that you know your your circle was, you know, uh, you know obviously. Uh, kind of upset by this uh too but i mean this is just just drives the point home that for you know for people especially the you know the 3.0ers and 2.0ers um you know who weren't around and you know the way information traveled i mean we barely had the internet cell phones were just you know barely a thing uh you know this was our information came in in these hushed lot whispers a lot of the time and you know and and friends of friends and so you have to understand that you know there isn't just there was no way to just google something to be like oh no the fish has this many dates lined up but you know like this isn't you know the way that just the way that information traveled you know (laughs) For all we know, this you know Trey was going to go solo. You know, yeah. so well, so so Jonathan, can you tell us a little bit about the drunken nine thirty club <laughs> experience? Because you've you and you've been you've tried to um, or you've talked about this particular show to me many times over the years. So I know it holds a special special. Well, it really does part of your heart. So, um, and and I will say first of all that my then girlfriend fiance 
now wife uh, babysat for me so I could go to the show with with my friends who who got a copped a ticket for me. So I'm forever indebted to all of my good friends. I think Scotty and uh, whatnot, as well as my my lovely wife for the fact that I was even able to go to this show. And um, she's a very nice she, person. She's a very nice person. Um, well, and real, real quick before you get into it, because I was actually going to ask you that, I, I imagine tickets for that show must have been nearly impossible to get. They were they were tough. <laughs> they were pretty tough. Um, and, you know, because he was playing uh, small theaters. He played, um, what, like Thomas Wolfe in Asheville. You know, he played moderate but a lot of sit down places and then he came to 930 club and it's it's like it's a bar and um everybody was standing up of course drinking talking having a good time and trey comes out to do his acoustic set and and he acknowledged that there's a very different environment uh people were listening don't think anybody were people were ignoring or really talking too much over him but there was definitely a, a, a vibe and um and so the acoustic set was real chill. He brought Tom out, and they did a couple of songs, and that was really nice. And then uh, and uh, we were down on the floor for all of that. And then we moved upstairs to what would be Mike's side now, you know, to, to in the balcony on the way up on the side, real close, and looking down at him and for the electric set. And I had heard of the shows i'd heard about the shows i'd seen the set list because i was online um at work and whatnot and so i had pretty good internet there and and uh but i hadn't really heard what he was doing until they were out there and they just came out and fucking slayed i mean this power trio was just a step beyond the trade just kind of leading out front of fish that we had seen this was i mean it was like three steps beyond it was you know throwing back to it was he was throwing back to hendrix frankly i mean he was just you know just wailing on the guitar and the new material with sand and a big jaboo and then uh the covers like i can see clearly now and he paced the set just right it's one of my top five shows attended like absolutely a great night and um yeah there's i mentioned the hendrix i mean of course it's because he played a voodoo child that i could hear in my ears for days after that
What, what about the drunken mayhem, though? Well, that was he during the acoustic set. He just you know acknowledged that everybody was talking, and he raised his glass and toasted to us. And so, guys, so this was in the spring, and then um, as we've kind of mentioned, either um, explicitly or alluded to, the Sicket disc comes out June third of ninety nine. So the what Wade was describing in terms of the rumors and what was going on, you sort of had this this Trey solo tour, and then you you. I think Matt, you mentioned like this came out. The Sigurd disc came out in '99, uh, June 3rd. But you know, it wasn't like it came out and got into your email. It came out via. I don't know, you had to go to a record store. No, you had to find a record store. The Sigurd disc. Oh, you had to yeah. mail order that shit. And, uh, and mail order that shit. And and yeah, I saw well, I didn't I had do that shit. That's bullshit. Probably before the Trey show. You know, I don't know how what the lead was on that, but I had certainly ordered it, and I I, I definitely had it by the time I got to a summer show. Um, well, yeah, you're, but you're like the, you're the, you're. I'm a fish. You're an exception. You can, you can say it. You're, you're an exception. So most people hadn't heard a lot of this stuff, as Wade sort of alluded to, and then they hit the hit the road at Sandstone Amphitheater in um, Bonner Springs, Kansas, on June 30th, and then interesting to go back to, but 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 as Wade says, like largely forgettable in the in the grand scheme of things. Not our episode, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it feeds the point of our episode very well. The is the inconsistency, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, which is why a lot of people uh, poo poo ninety nine. But you know that you know this is the the you know the constant pull and you know the push and pull of uh, of improv and you know where it meets everyone's personal lives and you know and I you know as we all of us here we got together to do this outline for the episode. You know, all of us agreed that. These next, you know, Lakewood is is where uh, where the magic starts to happen. Yeah, and I just I want to say one thing before we get into the 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 meat of the Lakewood discussion, which is that the the third of July, the first Lakewood show had the 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 debut of Mountains in the Mist, which I think had been played as part of the Trey acoustic sets um, in the the tours that, that Jonathan and Wade were talking about or those shows. Right. And he had, and I want kissed by mist and something else. It's so many, so many cute little songs. Well, I just want to tell everyone that first of all, mountains in the mist is awesome. And the first, the first one at July 3rd, 99, but also in 2017, they came out of the, um, down with disease and Dayton to mountains in the mist. And it was just really, I think that's how that, that song was meant to be played. But, we're not talking about that anymore after after that. So let's talk about the fourth, the f- July July fourth, ninety nine. Sort of the first show that we that we found something notable in terms of in terms of um, music. But I don't know. Were were you there, Wade? Were you at those shows? I was not. Uh, I was not. But I uh, luckily uh, I uh, it didn't take me too too long to get the tapes after that. Uh, we had a friend from uh, Sloatsburg, New York, with a pair of chefs who uh, did the bulk of it. So uh, I got to hear a lot of this on DAT, actually, which was uh, which is great. But um, what struck me about this show uh, was uh, the 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 way that Ghost and Slave paired with each other. And even though it's you know you look at Slave, it's eleven minutes forty seconds. Uh, it's still one of my favorite versions to date just for the uh, just absolute gorgeous heroic ending and now what what ends up happening here at the end of Slave is 
where, where, where I consider these days, I believe if the, if the band was going to choose to get so dynamic as to bring the set through slave, horse, silent, and what's the use? Now, we're in the middle, we're the dead nuts in the middle of the second set. But when they want to, they can get as quiet as they want to. But if they're playing it right and they're feeling it, 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 it's just as every bit as powerful as if they're laying on the gas. And 1999 is, I, I believe the crowd let them go on these, were more forgiving of these more mellow tangents because they were so psychedelic and because they were so well played. And of course, you know, later on we'll get to the, the, the My Left Toes and well, stuff. We were also trained over the course of the previous year uh, for the ambient stuff in 98. I mean, they played the, a full ambient set at Lemon Wheel. They had us, uh, you know, toot taut, you know, like a dog to respond to the bell. I, I know you're absolutely right, and I, I'm so glad you said you brought up the Ring of Fire set. I can't believe I glossed over that in the uh, when we were talking about 98. The, the, the Ring of Fire set is absolutely... And I think taught is a is a great great way of saying that too, um, you know, because that is a, that's a very delicate section. And I mean, uh, just the way they land the what's the use from silent, and you know, I mean, this tune. I mean, and that, and, and then okay, okay, so like let's song outside. Now let's just get into just the very language of this, okay? What's the use? So, you know, it's it's the, you know, we're starting to get these first direct messages in text from the band. What's the use? Overrated. It doesn't matter. This is, these were, this was very disconcerting to a, to a group of people who were like, you know, this was clearly building this something, but we did not want it to build to this. First Trey goes solo, and now it doesn't matter, and everything's overrated. Like, what is happening? Uh, I, yeah, now. I was going to say, I remember um, catching up with my friends when they, right after these shows. So they came home. I don't know. It, it might have been, I don't know where the day off was or where it happened, but I hadn't heard Bug yet. And I said, man, what is this? What is Bug? And and they, they had been out and went to Kansas and they were taping all the shows. And this was my friends, Scott and John. And John said to me, um, oh, it doesn't matter. I was like, no, but what is bug? He said, don't worry about it. Doesn't matter. <laughs> but but I want to hear bug, and yeah. and I don't really know what day that happened because I saw them. It must have been right after Lakewood, before in between Lakewood and Charlotte, because they came home to Virginia, and uh, and we had that conversation because the next time I saw them would have been Virginia Beach. There's uh, three days in between Lakewood and uh, Blockbuster where they, I mean, the expertly dropped bug after the my left toe waiting my left right. toe. Well, let's let let me just say just real quick before we before we go move on to that. Um, what's the use still in this day and age? There's the Magnaball version that I that I remember perfectly from being there in complete silence, um, and I think they. That year at MSG, they sort of brought the entire garden down to silence, and it, it just—it still works. The whole thing still works, but this debut 
from uh, July Fourth is is worth checking out, just in terms of a uh, of a first first pass at what I think is still like a classic. And they they just played it at the last New Year's Eve show that uh, Matt Matt and I were both at, and um, it was really cool when it happened. I texted Wade. I text Wade every time I hear it. Well, and, and and back to the back to the point from before, they dropped that, um, and nobody's heard it yet, right? And mm-hmm. so I mean, like, you've got a lot of people scratching their heads, going, "What is this beautiful thing that? Um, where did it come from? Is this some sort of little jam that happened? You know, maybe some people, you know, suggesting that it's one of those sick at disc songs that they haven't heard. Um, so you have a really attentive audience in this first version because nobody knows what's happening. Before we before we went back to what's the use, you were talking about the my left toe waiting my left toe from the seventh in Charlotte, which was really um, I think that was like one of the centerpieces of this summer tour that you wanted to highlight. It was really pretty interesting, and we have we have some thoughts. But what was your what's your reflection on that that combination? I I again, this is where we see a a crowd. Willing to let the band go, you know, and you know, you know, and waiting now to, to anyone who did a bunch of, you know, shows in um, in '98, you know, was basically becoming a four-letter word, <laughs> um, and and here you have, here you have it dropped expertly, flawlessly in the middle of my left toe. And now all of a sudden it's the center of the known universe, and Trey absolutely nails the solo. Um, and now you can argue <clears throat> there's only a few notes from from Trey that would indicate that they actually went back into my left toe. And it's in it, you know. Here we are, this huge, slow, gorgeous, but yet still driving ambient piece that leaves you off with it doesn't matter overrated all of this doesn't matter you know what i mean and it's like and then of course we're followed up by you enjoying myself it's like oh wait a minute of course this matters (laughs) sort of Thank you. 
Uh, but even still, I mean, the the, the, the the intro to 2001 is is some of the deepest space that that, that they achieve as well. And uh, this the 7799 is is, is just a, a a wonderful example of of. Uh, I mean, you know, you know, the, before Bittersweet had come out, no one would have would see Bittersweet for a year. But here you have Mike being like, you play too many notes. <laughs> and it says, well, you always say that. And here you have, in 1999, they finally learned that an ambient process, an ambient improvisation will give you much more of a democratic process and more people have the floor. A lot of these times in 1999, and it was mentioned in the document, Mike Gordon is actually the one leading the charge. Mm-hmm. And 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 Mike is a huge part of the the energy and the build up of this my left toe, uh, and uh, uh, I believe 1999 Mike really found his voice in a tonal level. Uh, he had finally, thanks to people for a louder mic, between that and and and, uh, and and now the more melodic approach to improvisation. Now we're hearing Mike take uh, the lead much more, and I feel like this. Uh, this night in particular is a great, uh, great example of of Mike really stepping out front. And Mike, by the way, now literally center of the band's world playing because they've switched positions on stage, and he's uh, he's in the center and Trey's off to the side on the other side of Fishman. Which I imagine, you know, besides the th- the other things that we talked about leading up to all of this, had to have a, a very very significant impact on. Uh, on this 99 sound. Well, I was going to say, so here we come to three shows in a, that I went to. Um, this was my summer was the Virginia beach, the Meriwether and the East center show. And um, the, the improvisation that was on stage at the Virginia beach show was just flipped my wig as it were. It was just completely completely changing to me. I, I I was stunned by what I heard. The fee, the jam out of fee was just, we were flying, just flying above that uh, amphitheater. And then the beautiful, uh, if I only had a brain and the birds of a feather in the second set um, was just gorgeous. And they were they were playing at such I was just amazed at the level which they came in. Like I knew Trey was feeling his chops because I had seen him in May, but and I had heard good things from my friends a couple days earlier, and they'd played me a couple clips from the show the first couple shows, but I, I just did not know where we really stood until that night. And then Merryweather is a, another good meaty show, and um the Camden show is okay. Um, it's all right. Yeah, that's all right. There's not not much happened in that it. show. Jonathan and I have never talked about that before. But Jonathan, let me just say before I comment on the Camden show, if you if you guys who are listening, if you haven't heard Live Bait Ten, um, it opens with uh, "What's the Use" from um, Mansfield, which is on the twelfth, and then the um, the fee jam from the eighth. Um, that Jonathan alluded to from Virginia Beach are both on Live Bait 10. So if you want to hear sub soundboard um, recordings of those, some of this good July 99 stuff, you can find it there. But Camden was the site of what, what may have been the, one of the best fish jams of all time, the Choctaw's Torture, which Jonathan and I have, um, have, have fought about in person. We had fist fights. It's true. 
um, in this person scar about right it. here um, from that. Yeah, you can see it. It's from the Camden Chalk Dust argument. But these, but for everyone listening, we're we're kind of we're trying to get through everything in this whole year. So we we are skipping over a few, including the tenth in terms of music because it was released as Live Fish Eight. Everyone knows seven ten ninety nine. The the tweezer. The I mean the Chalk Dust. Everything is amazing, but they. It was sort of hit and hit or miss. Like one of those nights of Great Woods was was really good. One of them was okay, right? Before they went on to to Homedale. The two the two Tweeter Center shows. I will say that uh, even you know I wasn't at. Unfortunately, it wasn't at Hampton. But I mean, you know, take the Piper from you know the comeback show in '02, and I mean, as far as openers and and, and deafening volume is concerned. The foreplay, long time. Uh, I'll never forget that as long as I live. The roar of that crowd, that place absolutely exploded. You know, and then uh, and then the next night. Now the second set wasn't great, but what you do have is the only full No. Two, uh, the last full and complete No. Two, with the with the end outro part. That is the last time that they have performed that and that came out of the best section of the whole night which is a, a recommended 99 listening 100% is the Haley's into Roses into NO2 the last time they played the, the, the full version and it's 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 a must listen for 1999 we're not going nice. to get into it but uh, that's that is the choice nugget to take away from also the second worth, night worth noting that Scotty Morosky was uh Set in that night, and uh, and if you don't know him from his uh, from his other band, you might know him from the Mike Gordon band. So, Max Creek, Mike Gordon band, absolutely. Scott Morowski, great uh, Connecticut boy, gotta love him. Um, and uh, and and so yeah, so the tw- but 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 to RJ's point, inconsistency was July being one of the more consistent months. Uh, of the year, um, especially heading into Oswego, but you know, and it, uh, even Oswego had some, you know, a few boring points, but mostly it was absolutely scorching fire. Wait, before we go, before we go into Oswego, let's go back to the fifteenth real quick, just to touch on the the split open and melt, Kung Jam, um, which we we all listened to and went back to again. And that was, um, I don't know, Matt, Matt, what was your take on that, on that combo? Talk about the OG Mike says no. <laughs> I, I love, love, love this, this whole sequence, by the way. I mean, it's, it's really amazing. And, and, uh, this is another one that made it onto a, uh, a live bait. Uh, I can't remember which one off the top of my head, but this is, I would love to know what happened here because you hear Fishman start 2001 and then Mike very, very assertively jumps in and starts playing the, the split open and melt bass line, which tri- it sounds it sounds then like Trey uh, is like, ooh, 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 yeah, let's do that instead and goes with Mike. So then they're kind of, there's this battle back and forth where they're kind of like 
trying to decide which song they're playing, and Trey starts singing it, and then Fishman, like, accentuates the fact that he's playing the 2001 drum beat a little bit more. It reminds me of later in the year, uh, the second night at the Spectrum, the, the December 11th show, when they couldn't decide whether they were playing ACDC Bag or Sneak and <laughs> Sally. And they sort of kept going back and forth beto- before latching onto one. But then that results in all of these tempo battles throughout the whole thing that eventually leads into them playing Kung um, and then that, that beautiful jam afterwards. But it's one of those things where, like, for 30 minutes, the entire thing is, like, just about to fall apart. It's just seconds away those from are the being best a disaster. Split open and, melts. And, they sum- and, they, and they keep it together somehow, but I don't know, like, I, I, I wasn't at the show, and I, I don't know that I've ever, if there's video of it or anything, but, like, I would love to be able to see the looks on their faces to see whether this was all sort of in jest at at a certain point or if they were really kind of battling with each other over the tempo and what song they were playing Um, but the result is, is absolutely amazing
What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Uh, you're absolutely correct. And the thing is, is that a lot of the times there was visible discourse on stage. Uh, there was, there, there was, and as the year went on, the, the tension grew as the, you know, the looks got sterner and sharper. You know, there was a lot of Trey shooting daggers over his shoulder, over at Fishman. Uh, Fishman, uh, you know, again in the split unrelenting on the 2001 beat he's like this is the fucking beat i'm playing figure out how to put split into this measure you know <laughs> what i mean and now you know you know um of course i can't say that the, you know it was always discourse you know what i mean but as the year progressed the so did the the you know the crowd was getting the picture that like you Everything you just said encapsulated 99 absolutely perfect. It's this gorgeous disaster that could fall apart literally at any second <laughs> that somehow comes out with this seven and a half hour set in the middle of the Everglades with the sun shining over us being like, now what the fuck are all of us going to do, band and fan included? Well, we're going to, I don't want you to get too, too far ahead of yourself, Wade, because we got months and Episodes months to over. go. That's it. We did it. <laughs> no, you know, I'm just saying that, that that was. I think that was an absolutely gorgeous assessment about the beautiful disaster thing. So we'll we'll save we'll we'll save all that that great shit for later. But uh, but yes, I think that's a great assessment of uh, of that coup uh, and that split jam. That's great. And then we so we started to touch on Oswego uh, quite colorfully. And uh, but there, are, I I have to say there are some highlights, um, and, and and as well as the dips as as with all these things, I personally am a fan of the Del McCrory sit-in. Uh, talked a bit about that on the Beyond the Pond thing uh, a while back. Uh, yeah, yeah, I had to get Yay. that in there. And <laughs> uh, there's Big Jim and uh, the Piper, uh, which I went back to today and I put it on for my kids. Big Big Jim. Big Jim is my favorite fish song. <laughs> um, big bad, what, um, the Piper is pretty badass. And um, I, I decided to, while listening to it with my kids, that the um, the jam style, like the first half of the jam, is what I call wankadelic. And that is, um, nice. that is trademark and uh, it's hashtagged. Coined. It's coined. You could, this is a every year you have to coin a thing. You coined Micro Jam last year, and now and this year is Wankadelic. That, um, Fish plays Wankadelic music in 
does finally become Team Fish, we have this now, thank God, drum and bass has now permeated house and funk and four on the floor had had its time in 97 and now with the advent of birds of a feather we now have drum and bass in fish's repertoire and this is an absolute glowing if not the top example of a fish drum and bass jam and it gets super psychedelic and trey ops to layer and sculpt after the wankadelic which is fucking amazing by the way that's incredible um which eventually finds its way back to wankadelic uh and uh this uh i think the drum and bass rhythm pattern was was another very 1999 thing uh when they started to give into these spacier leanings and fishman had that you know that whole a set of beats from and even limb by limb the very complicated limb by limb that he learned from the drum machine uh that trey had you know those very complicated syncopated beats uh were a big part of why these spacey excursions weren't putting the audience to sleep fishman was able to keep those very syncopated and swift break beats uh going and this piper is a, a, a and, glorious and I will example say, of that i agree that the, the jam does change uh and it gets really beautiful, and there's a really nice seg into Caspian if you're into that sort of thing, which I am. So, mm-hmm. boo, what? Caspian. Um, so what? I'm just I'm sorry. I got a log off Caspian. now. We're about to talk. We're we're going to talk about it in a few minutes. <laughs> so, guys, this is so we talked about Oswego. There, there's a couple things that happen after that. They go to Canada and play a show. I think the only notable thing that happened there was that they covered Misty Mountain Hop for the first time and then back to Star Lake and then they covered Pavement for the first time. I think those were the two highlights of those two shows. And then back to, to Ohio for, for Polaris on the 23rd where they, um, I think the, the ghost from there is, is, is notable, was notable to me. But um, one thing I want to note is that there's a meat stick here. There were a lot of meat sticks and Trey, like every show, was telling people about the meat stick and how they were going to do this thing and the, the Guinness Book of World Records. And it seemed like that was like kind of his main concern on this tour was like making sure he told people about the about the meat stick and how they were going to do it. And then I think at the end of this show, or I mean, at the end of the meat stick, he mentioned that the 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 New Year's Eve shows would be in Florida. I don't know if he said the exact venue or location, but that was like so. The twenty third of July is when people found out that they were going to Florida um, in December, which I think is pretty interesting, but I like, really like this ghost too. Yeah. And it, oh, it, it's, it's funny cause it's kind of like yada yada in there, like in the middle of this whole rant about trying to set the Guinness book of world records thing for the mm-hmm. synchronized dance, which they didn't even like, I mean, they did it, but they weren't aware of the new record is just hilarious. But then Trey's just like, okay, so, you know, we're going to do this New Year's Eve concert in uh, in Florida. We're going to play outside. And you hear the crowd on the audience recording kind of go like, wait, hold, wait, what the fuck did he just say? Like, <laughs> we're, they're going to they're gonna play in Florida outside for New Year's? That's like, maybe deserves a little bit more attention. Than eh, it's no big deal, really. Out. I mean, we're not even going to cover it too much, you know. Uh, but no, but RJ, I think I, 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 I the ghost stays type one for, for most of the time. Uh, then has this really pretty... Uh, pretty section and the the segue uh, into free is actually really uh, really very nice. But yes, this was of note the first time we found out uh, that uh, 
there was going to be a big uh, a big to do. Uh, there was going to be a doings, a transpirings, to uh, quote The Simpsons.
Matt, in, Matt, you mentioned in the notes on this ghost that Mike had more control over the tonal center than usual. What does that mean? Like we were talking about before with Mike kind of stepping forward and, and you know, with, when Trey lays back and does more kind of like ambient stuff um, later on the keyboard or right now when he's sort of, you know, setting up just sort of uh, rhythmic patterns of sound and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Mike winds up stand, uh, kind of coming out uh, in front and... Um, and leading and so to, to have control over the tonal center the the bass player always kind of has control the tonal center is really like what you know for lack of a better term like what chord they're playing at the moment or, mm-hmm. or what key that they're playing what key in. they're in okay. okay yeah it's it's yeah kind of like that um and so the bass player has the power to really change that because they're they're typically playing the root note through the lowest they occupy this space that nobody else is competing with. Um, but then they could, you know, for example, you know, play, a, just start playing a different note and they can basically change the entire chord that the band is, is playing and, and kind of reshape things. Um, so when you don't have Trey taking the lead or even Paige, who's kind of laying back a lot and doing a lot of textures and synthy stuff, um, Mike has the power to step forward and say, okay, well, you know what? Now we're just all going to modulate to minor now. And now I'm going to completely change the key. And it, he doesn't need the whole band to necessarily go along with him. When Trey and Paige are playing stuff that's more texture-based in, instead of melodic-based, um, it's very easy for Mike to kind of navigate into, into new spaces. The ironic part being that um, he also it's kind of strange in this year that he sort of winds up playing a lot like Tony Markellis for a good chunk of the year, you know, coming out of Trey's solo experience. Like when have you ever heard other than 1999, Mike play the same exact riff over and over again for like five or 10 minutes. It just didn't, it, I don't, I think that, I don't know that today he would be capable of doing that. Um, and yet here he he does it for long periods of time all throughout 1999. One of the things that was kind of the fallout of the Trey solo tour was the notion of like, would Fish play this? Will Fish play this? Fish will not play this. Sand or Gata Jabu. Because Mike doesn't play bass lines like that. Um, there were, I think there were interviews or at least had to have been at least one interview with Trey where he made some reference to the the thing he liked about this band was that it was a pocket band and you couldn't like tip uh tip uh tony to you know you couldn't tip these guys to get them to play a fill you know this is just like we are laying into the groove and we really didn't believe some of us didn't believe or we doubted that mike would ever play that kind of like the sand groove you know for you know, Trey was playing that for a dozen minutes or more. So Mike, Mike's not going to play that for 12 minutes. <laughs> I thought, I thought <laughs> it was really awesome. I thought it was really awesome when, um, at SPAC there at 3.0 when they actually did have Tony come out. And, um, I remember, uh, when, I, when I was living in Burlington having, you know, spent, uh, a bunch of time with with Tony it was funny when he would ask him about <laughs> when he would ask him about Mike Mike or, or Jabu he would say oh he plays with a pick doesn't even matter <laughs> it's like it doesn't doesn't matter he plays with a pick it doesn't I I 
whatever. And I, I always thought that was very cute. He was like, you know, of course he was joking. He, you know, of course he, he thinks Mike's an, an incredible bass player. Yeah. But I, thought, I always thought that was funny. It's like, <laughs> oh, he plays for the pick. It doesn't even matter what he plays. Another uh, uh, show in the scene where there was a lot of controversy surrounding, especially with the the encore, um, the uh, the. Uh, the audience had felt that they were, you know, somehow mistreated in the second set, which is why they got the gigantic Glide Camel Walk alumni encore. And so there you're talking about the 724 show at Alpine. Uh, indeed I am. Uh, and, uh, you know, which was, you know, uh, you know, another one of those nights where there was a lot of what looks on stage and 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 invisible tension and and uh uh but what we, <laughs> we end up with here are some of the more adventurous uh pieces of any era uh and certainly places that you would never expect and uh i'm gonna let you gentlemen uh talk about what that fluffhead jam means to you <laughs> i thought it was it's I know this is like a thing that people go back to. Um, the fluffhead itself is like you know, there's there's, it's fine, right? But but the there's a there's a jam coming out of it that's very rare, and um, I don't know. It, it was very encapsulating of this of this era. I thought. I don't know, Matt. What what was your what was your take listening back to it? I actually I don't know if I agree with that last thing that you said. I think Sweet. I, to me I feel like um, this jam's a little atypical for '99 because hmm. it actually do, it goes to a lot of different places. Um, there's a section at around 22 minutes in where it sounds like a ghost jam. It's very funky. Um, so as opposed to a lot of the jams this year, which did harp on one groove over and over again. This was almost a lot more like, uh, you know, 98 or 2000 style of, uh, of jam. Oh, yeah. Maybe. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. I guess. I think, I think what RJ, I think what RJ was saying, I, I think that this resembles a lot of the, the fee, the fee into the jam from Virginia Beach, whereas maybe it's not uh, uh, the kind of jam from the year which that fee was. But getting a jam in a place where there a jam never existed before, I think maybe, maybe that's what RJ was saying. I don't know. I, I don't know. We'll, we'll never know. We'll never we'll know because he's, we'll he's we'll never know what RJ was saying because he he died. <laughs> I think it was where it started versus where it ended up. It started with like the with just like Trey pushing buttons, which is my my whole uh, theme for this year. And then I think where it end where it evolved into maybe matt was was into different places but i think coming out of the fluff head itself was like it's it it felt it feels for a while like it's just going to be like the ambient jam with trey pushing buttons but then it it goes goes different places but mike sort of takes charge when it starts to go different places is is my expert opinion does that make sense to you matt is it mike who who drives it to those different places uh, I think that uh, he's definitely the catalyst for them extending the, the end of Fluff. Mm-hmm. He, he steps mm-hmm. up first and starts playing some melodic stuff uh, that's very atypical for Fluffhead.
still kind of crazy that they don't would not have ever really jammed out the end of Fluffhead before mm-hmm. or since. Um, it just especially since it's such a, like a you know rock peak jam. Oh yeah, that yeah. they could easily turn into wherever they wanted to go. It's like it's like disease, but they never did. You know, I mean, it's right. got this like soaring anthemic thing that they could use as a launching point, and instead they're like, nah, you know, we did our seventeen minutes. Let's uh, let's wrap it up and move on. Right, so I, I I I don't have a lot to add to this, but I think that um, the comment that I wrote in the document needs to be uttered out loud because it's really what I felt when I listened to this. Just kind of, um, you know, although I did note the break that you the breakdown that you mentioned at twenty two minutes, Matt, um, I noticed that. But otherwise, really, this thing just kind of grooves off to the edge of the atmosphere. It almost goes into just goes out into space so it doesn't really go out into space it just kind of goes and uh it's a good ride and it's so weird that it comes out of Fluffhead. and um this also this is the night they uh debuted the happy whip and dung song so um i just like to say that out loud at the whole the whole show is worth going back to and um I, the the you mentioned the the encore earlier way the alumni it was the it was the first time it was played in the in its entirety since uh April 15th of 94 so there's a lot that happened here and and to be fair the next night um which we don't we didn't touch on in this outline is a is a top 100 um show according to the fish.net um nerds who are also cool um there's some solid opinions in this book. I actually have. I'm holding my book right here. The Fish here. Companion. There it is. Top As, 100. Uh, and I show. saw the top 100. It's right there. And the I mean, there. well, anytime you let a bunch of fans write a set list, you're going to have a top 100 show. I mean, you high know, probability. You know, it's a high probability you're going to give the you know the the keys to the Green Crew. They're going to fucking they're going to end up with a ringer. Um. So, so guys, let's. Let's wrap up this episode. This is going to be a two-parter if we haven't mentioned it yet, um, which people will figure out by the time they it, get here. A, a broad sigh of relief in subway cars everywhere just now. Yeah, exactly. They're like, oh, my God. <laughs> They're only on July. Let's, it's um, been three hours. No, I'm kidding. Matt, yeah. and Matt, maybe we should just go out after this on, a, on something from the, the Japan, but um i don't this is yeah so that happened what there were there were four full shows i think at the end of end end of july and the first of august so uh, that was pretty interesting their first trip there and and wasn't as notable in terms of the the music as the the 2000 japan trip in terms of how it made it into the archives but still pretty interesting and i'm sure had a had a influence on how they were playing going into the the fall, which we're going to touch on in part two. I don't know what do you guys what do, what's your take, um, Jonathan? Can you start us off with the, the Japan? So I remember transition? they announced this, and we were giddy and mad because I couldn't go to Japan, um, and yeah, apparently it was Fuck. quite a wonderful wonderful trip. And we should we could probably do a, a pretty awesome episode on like Japan fish shows. Hmm. Um, so note that one. I will. And, uh, I just noted it. And I think uh, <laughs> we were going to go out on that. Like we should go out on the Caspian because it, it's like <laughs> this. This ties back to where we started because Trey's got that crazy shreddy uh, sound, just like what we had in on the solo tour. 
Yeah, the whole the whole entire solo is almost a reverse delay, and it's absolutely gorgeous the way that he plays off the notes, coming back at himself, and it's just like, uh, I remember, <laughs> I remember points of this tour, where he would do you know be in a sand jam or something, and and you know my my buddy's turning to me be like, is that fucking guitar playing itself backwards? <laughs> Uh, so that, I mean, just, uh, you know, and again, dead nuts in the middle of the second set. We have Waiting and Caspian butted up next to each other, and nobody cares. One, because they're in Japan, but two, they're just nailing it. It's just, it, it's gorgeous. It fits. Uh, it, it, I mean, the whole set, the, the whole, the 2001 Bowie, Waiting, Caspian, Fluffhead, Coil, is absolutely perfect. And so, not only did Japan yield. It yielded the Japanese lyrics to Meat Stick. Thank you very much. Kill me. Um, <laughs> so besides bringing back a bit of the language, it seemed that they brought back a bit of the discipline as well. And it was nice to see them bring out some um, uh, local indigenous music. Um, it's sort of, uh, I forget the name of the instrument, but it's, uh, it's uh, similar to a didgeridoo. Uh, to which they uh, do this little open jam that uh, saunters into uh, Brian and Robert. So um, this the 731 show has got a, a, a great mix of of, uh, of of a bunch of stuff. But yes, the Caspian is is uh, uh, I go I go six to midnight every time on that solo. <laughs> Matt, Matt, what's your what's your take on the? <laughs> I don't know if I should even try and follow that. Uh, Not too closely. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, mu- musically, I think that I think we 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 talked about it. It's, it, I think we're good there. But a couple of things that I I noticed. First off, um, interesting that you know you mentioned there was like four shows, but they were all a part of the Fuji Rock Festival. Mm-hmm. And I don't know a whole lot about the Fuji Rock Festival. I don't know if that's common for a U.S. band to go over and play like every day of the festival or if this was like a, an, a you know a special arrangement for fish so um it's kind of cool that i mean they were on the same stage every every day at this mm-hmm. festival just for for four days um but then uh the other thing that i was going to mention um call call back to the the start of the episode when we talked about uh the pretty numbers that we get um on the on the show now um did you guys happen to notice that uh the top city that we were getting listens from uh, like in the last three weeks is Tokyo. Yeah. I saw that. I was, um, I was yes. so, so something either like uh, there's like, we're being like spied on or something like that. Or like there's um, some, some folks over there uh, like hanging out and listening to the shit out of our podcast which is totally cool. And if you are over there in Japan, whether you're an expat or you are Japanese, um, let us know. In fact, all of, I think it'd be cool if all, more international listeners hit us up and let us know that you're listening because we really do have listeners all over the world and we've got the, the, the data to prove it. Yeah. So we got the that analytics. Was, that, was, that was my little thought about that. That's good. Yeah. We got some analytics now, bitches. So don't anyone try to come at us. <laughs> I have not we, seen any got, of this stuff. <laughs> we're lousy with them it's true though it's true we got data another plug for simplecast um so guys so just to kind of wrap it up um we had wade touched on the discord and what we saw on stage and um some of the 
some of it coming through in the music in the you know through the summer tour here we're gonna pick it back up next time with uh picking it up at fall tour which is when things get pretty weird um and I like weird and weird's my place weird yeah weird is in a good way i think in this case there's no like you know not like uh shitty horror movie weird like good well don't good, give spoilers spacey jam weird but I think everyone should tune back in to find out what happens because you can't find out otherwise. There's not these the fall tour that we're going to talk about next episode. You can't find those shows on the internet, so the only place you're going to find them is you can't lie to is people. That stuff is verifiable now. Podcast. I know you see it on TV all the time, but we can't do that. Maggie does end up shooting Mr. Burns. If you had him, <laughs> that was the one spoiler we were hoping not to not to reveal, Wade. Well, Wade, thank you for for spurring this discussion and um, adding all your glorious notes to get us started. And um, this was this fun to go back to. I'm looking forward to part two. Uh, well, thank you, uh, thank you for having me. I look forward to getting to the darker material. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, Jonathan, anything before we wrap this this part up? Tip your servers. I'll see you on the dark side. <laughs> All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Keep on rocking.
For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard. <laughs> 